0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, first Peter chapter 4 verses 8 through 12. I'm going to start with verse 7 and I'm going to stop at 11. Verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. And let's pray, Father. We pray that as we come to your word, that you would you would bless our minds and our hearts to receive it. We ask that we would not be those who uh, hear it and forget it, but we would be those who hear it and do it. And so we ask that by your Spirit's power, these, this word would penetrate our hearts and lead to repentance and lead to maturity. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So the Apostle Peter's first words in the passage we're considering, starting in verse 8, are above all. Above all, he starts with. That means that what follows is what the Apostle, indeed what the Holy Spirit considers to be the first priority for the Christian life. What is it that we are to do above all? What is to be our highest priority? And he says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So let's begin with those first two words, keep fervent. In the Greek, it's a little more physical. Um, literally, the Greek would read, be stretched out in your love for one another. Be stretched out. I, I think the command is that we are to be zealous in our love. Today, we might say, um, we might use the word, which is a weak word, but intentional. Right? Be intentional in your love. Um, our love for one another is to be fervent. It should be intense. It should be. Um, it should stretch us out, right? It should. Uh, it should cause us. Um, it, it should cause us to. Uh, we should struggle to be so um, loving one another. Now we have to be careful here, because we think that to love somebody is to have feelings for somebody, right? That's typically how we use the word love or falling in love or you know, I I love I love chocolate cookies, right? Uh chocolate chip cookies, especially if you've left them in the in the, the freezer for a little bit. The chocolate gets hard and they're cold. Right. I I go the opposite way of most people. Um but I love, you know, they make me feel good. They they give me certain vibes. That's the way we think about love. That may be a p- component of love for sure. But that is not the entirety of love. Love is action, right? Love is um, more than a feeling. Uh, to quote Boston, um, love is motivation to seek the the well being of another, right? It's it's motivation that that seeks the well being of another. Love is sympathy, right? Love is uh, dropping off a meal for somebody. Love is visiting somebody who's who's sick and in the hospital because the hospital is a depressing place to be by yourself, particularly when your circumstances are dire, right? Fervent love for one another is what leads to the situation the apostle describes in 1 Corinthians 12. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the all the members rejoice with it. And so fervent love leads to our care for one another. Certainly our knowledge of one another. But it's even more than knowledge. It's knowledge that leads to action. It's knowledge that leads to care. Now children, children who are listening to this at home, do you love your siblings? Do you love your siblings, your flesh and blood brothers and sisters? Or do you delight when they fail? Do you delight to point out their flaws? Do you like to uh, get at the head of the line so that you can take the biggest piece of cake? Right? Um, Do you like to ignore them? Ignore your siblings for long stretches of time because they just annoy you. Um, When you leave, when will you? I ask, leave these childish ways, these self-centered ways behind. I think it will probably happen as it happened in my own life. It didn't happen until I had suffered. Right? It didn't happen until I had suffered. And then when you suffer, you find out what it, what it means to actually be friendless and the pain of that. Or what it means to be sick and have no pride in your body, or what it means to be depressed. And then, after God has made you suffer, you may then begin to show some sympathy toward other people, and not think solely of yourselves, because you know what they're going through. You can truly sympathize. Without suffering, we all become self-centered monsters. That's what we become. I challenge you children to develop your fervent love for your siblings. Right? Who knows, you may need a kidney from them someday. And then you will find out, I mean seriously, then you will find out if it's easy or hard for them to love you. Fervent love doesn't just lead to care for one another. It also leads to what Peter mentions next. He exhorts us to love one another and then gives us a reason why we should love one another. He says because love covers a multitude of sins. This teaching comes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which reads, hatred stirs up tr- strife, but love covers all transgressions. The, the brother of Jesus James, at the very end of his book, also makes reference to the same proverb. He writes, "Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." We learn from James that that the action of love even leads us to the point, uh, or to the to the point where we can point out the error of of a um, sinner's ways. Uh, Most people today don't put that in the category of love, pointing out the ways of a sinner, do they? They consider that to be judgmental and not loving. Now it should be rather obvious what the Apostle means when he teaches us that love covers a multitude of sins. I think it is more than just the obvious fact that love allows us to forgive other sins or to overlook sins. What love is able to do, as Calvin puts it, is bury sins in oblivion. Every one of us sins, right? Every one of us sins in ways that are quite shameful. We insult one another when we haven't had enough sleep. right? We, we laugh when others are hurt. And because we love ourselves more than we love others, we feel some relief when others are embroiled in some scandal that we've avoided. Right it's quite obvious what our sins are isn't it We talk about needing discernment to do the work of the eldership or the pastorate but but what is often the case is this work is that uh, in this work is that the sins of others are so obvious that anyone in the congregation could name our sin, name your sins or name our sins uh, I am proud I am a proud man, okay? I am emotionally distant, right? I am not very sympathetic to people. You all know this about me. You, you know this about me. I've just named him and you're like, yep, that's Dion. And amazingly, you still love me. And even humble yourselves to receive the word preached from someone who is less mature than you. And that is the duty that descends from love, right? That is what we can do when we love. That is love covering a multitude of sins. Every Sunday, your love covers my sins. And it's glorious. It's glorious and encouraging. Um, it, it, it's, um, and it's a rebuke. Right, it's a rebuke to us when people love us and cover our sins, and then we, you know, don't want to do lift a pinky. Do the same for others. It's convicting. Calvin writes this: the singular benefit love brings to us when it exists among us is that innumerable evils are covered in oblivion. On the uh, on the on the other hand. Where loose reins are given to hatred, men by mutual biting and tearing must necessarily consume one another, as Paul says in Galatians 5.15. You remember that verse. But if, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Right? Love covers a multitude of sins. It's encouraging. It builds up. But hatred devours, It destroys, it breaks down. And you know that love has grown less than fervent, or even cold, when you are not able to look. look um, you're not able to overlook someone else's sins. You know love is broken down when you can't overlook somebody else's sins. This is not to say that we we should never practice discipline and should never point out another's sins. Remember what James said. Discipline, which is of God, is making much of someone's sins so that they might come to repentance. This is one of the primary rules of husbands, of parents, of fathers, of pastors, of elders, and yes, even friends whose wounds are better than the kisses of an enemy. But there is often a point when, in living with our reckless children, or our, our parents, or our spouse, or our fellow congregants, when our thoughts of them are only and always focused on their disgusting sins. And when that point comes, when we lose the ability to be self-critical, to see our own disgusting and putrefied sins, there will be no bearing of sins in oblivion. There will be no practice of love. Rather, there will be biting and devouring, and the other person will become uh, to you the epitome of sin, the embodiment of all things evil. And you will forbid, on principle, your love to be present, let alone fervent. Uh, Who is there who does not have many faults? And that being the case, Who is there who does not need to be continually forgiven? And if love covers a multitude of sins, love is the only way to go through your life without a well-honed sense of justice leading you to point out the flaws of everybody else. And at that point, the ethic of Jesus should come crashing in, but often does not for those who are proud. Jesus said, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it's going to be measured to you. Love buries sins in oblivion. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love puts into practice Jesus' teaching after the Apostle Peter's question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Up to seven times? And what was Jesus' response? I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And now, I mean, what what parent child relationship could even function without love being fervent? None of them would function. And perhaps that's why we see so many broken down, dysfunctional families. Love is absent. What marriage could possibly survive without love being fervent? Right? Two strong-willed individuals coming together to live their lives together, having everything in common except their own wills. Right? Love must be fervent. Is there any relationship that can continue in health without love being necessary? And the answer is no, because we're all self-centered sinners. And without love, any and every relationship would be broken. Get this, if you are in Christ, right? If you are in Christ, here's, here's a description of you. The love of God has been poured out within your heart through the Holy Spirit who is given to you. Think of that. The love of God has been poured out within your heart through the Holy Spirit who is given to you. You have within you, if you are born again, the very love of God which predates all of creation. Right? You have within you a resource of indefatigable strength. That love that is in you by the Holy Spirit's presence will bend your stubborn and proud spirit toward love. Pray that that is the case. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. And that means that you are animated by the very love God poured out within your heart. Now, do not grieve the spirit by resisting his power. And wallowing in the affections of the old man. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now the Apostle Peter moves on to hospitality. A subject that is strangely new given uh, the social distancing circumstances. We are constrained by this month and perhaps for months in the future. And... And again, perhaps because of the circumstances we are in, we're having to be more creative about what it means to be hospitable. Remember that the word here in the Greek is uh, philozenos. Philozenos. Philo Philo and zenos. Which literally means loving strangers, right? Love strangers. So, more than just opening our homes for home fellowship groups and having people over for supper, the concept of hospitality extends to loving strangers, loving those we don't normally spend any time with. Calamity seems to bring and calamity seems to bring about strange avenues of hospitality doesn't it um, it 's very strange that way. I was talking with Sandy Fultz earlier this week, and she told me that the people in her neighborhood have taken to writing messages of encouragement at the ends of their driveways with sidewalk chalk. Um, as people walk in the neighborhood or drive by then, they see these messages. This is a kind of hospitality that, I mean, should our difficult circumstances have not come about, we, we, would have, we wouldn't have done, we would have neglected this, um, as we don't give a thought to our neighbors on a regular basis. Many of our neighbors closest to us remain strangers to us. We've, we've also been um, looking out for one another, right? Asking neighbors if they need something from the grocery store or they need toilet paper or whatever it may be. Wouldn't it be great if that kind of love for strangers continued past our current lockdown, right? And uh, you're going to the store and, and you, you pop your neighbor a text and ask if they need a gallon of milk. Right? Go into the store. Maybe I can lighten your burden a little bit. you need anything, I can get for you. Now the Apostle Peter, who has been forgiven much, right, knows what we are like. Notice that the text says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. We have conversations in our houses that go like this after our guest's. I'm I'm happy we host a home fellowship group. But so and so's children do damage to our home every week. Do do their parents see any of this? That's one of that's that's one way we practice hospitality begrudgingly by placing the cleanliness of our homes above relationships, right? Another way which may be a bit more sophisticated is this. We, as Calvin says in his commentary, spend ourselves and our wealth on our neighbors and then disparage them for needing help. There may be reasons someone needs help that are less than noble. Sometimes lazy men need a meal. Right? And that certainly should be addressed at some point. But don't be the person who helps a lazy man out and then leaves only to spend the next half hour disgusted with him. At the very least, help him out both physically and spiritually. Don't just give the man a meal. Give the man a word from Scripture. You know what Scripture says? Scripture says that if you don't work, you don't eat. And, and the food you eat, brother, will taste much better if you've worked. then then instead of going away disparaging the man, you go away praying for him. Maybe God will use that word that I planted in his mind for his good. The goal is to show kindness to others willingly and with a cheerful mind. And we should remember the kindness that God has shown to us, right? When we have a lack, God gives to us even though we have sinned against Him in innumerable ways. We are odious and He continues to provide. And perhaps my favorite verse in James, we are told that if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. And then it says this, Who gives to all generously and without reproach? How sweet is that? That to wicked sinners, God gives without reproach. Imagine if God reproached you every time he answered a prayer with his provision. We'd be destroyed. We'd be destroyed. His reproaches would be continually falling upon us. Right? God gives to all generously and without reproach. We too should practice hospitality and not reproach those who are the recipients of that hospitality. Never, um, never have people into your home and then right after the last guest has left, sigh out of your mouth ungrateful people, look how dirty my carpet got. Don't even think that thought. Right? There will come a time when your very existence, perhaps later in life, perhaps through some providential act of God, where, where your very existence is dependent upon the hospitality of others. The hospitality of a hospital with nurses. Right? At that point, you will be desperate to find somebody who knows how to practice hospitality without complaint. You won't want to feel like a burden, right? And the way you feel burdened is when pe- people complain against you. And so what glory there is in practicing hospitality without complaint, it assures, it assures people of the love of God. It assures people of, of good things. It will be such a gift both to, to you and to them. Well next the apostle Paul speaks of gifts each as each one has received a gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God notice that the gifts are given by God right they're given by God the text says they are received and that those gifts are given for the purpose of serving one another right so they're they're not something you worked up yourself that you get to decide how they get to be used. They're things given by God and received. And so it's a stewardship from God that you receive that you have to do for His purposes. There's not much room in that equation for ego. Right. Common problem in the church when it comes to gifts, whether those gifts are speaking gifts or service gifts, is that people think their gifts are given to them to make them look good or to make them indispensable to the life and ministry of the church, or to give them some sort of self-satisfaction, some fulfillment. Right? They think gifts are meant to fulfill themselves. It, I've got gifts, and when I use them, I feel good about myself. I feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm doing um, meaningful work. That's what most of the women of the PCA are saying right now as they as the denomination manufactures new offices for women so they can have pride of place in the church. Right? They've been complaining that they don't feel loved and needed. and They have no place to exercise their gifts. But gifts are given by God, not for self-fulfillment. They're given for serving one another. If you have a gift, it's an obligation, not meant necessarily to give you warm fuzzies as you exercise it, and as people praise you for your amazing work. No, it, it's, an, it's an obligation that God gives you because he, he loves His church and He will always provide for His sheep. And He's, he's going to use you for those ends. And it's glorious. It's glorious, but it's not self-actualization. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not... Uh, your gifts are not given to you so that your self-esteem can be high. They're given for the purposes that God gives them. Our minds are skewed today by by that you you know you are a precious and unique butterfly that has an obligation to be a one, you know uh, that has you have an obligation to be a one of a kind. That sort of attitude that dominates today. Your talents and gifts are not given to you in order to draw attention to yourself and amplify your own giftedness. They're given to be a blessing to to others. You are just a cog in God's wheel. Right. When we understand this and let go of our inflated egos, we can finally give ourselves to gifts for the glory of God and not for our own glory. Your worth is in Jesus Christ, not in what you can do or perform. Let's remember that first of all. Your worth is in Jesus Christ, by faith, not in what you do. Okay? And because your worth is in Jesus Christ, you're free to do and perform from pure and holy and lovely motives. What, you know, would that our celebrity pastors understood this? Would that our effeminate men who fuss and fuss and fuss until they get a position to lead up front would understand this. right? Would that our ladies would understand this, that he will only give to them what is appropriate to their sex and what does not lead to their self-fulfillment unless that self-fulfillment is to do the will of God. Our gifts are given to us as a stewardship of what rightly belongs to God. They are not ours. They are His, as is the church that Jesus purchased with His own blood. To view your gifts as a stewardship received from God is very much different than to view your gifts as an opportunity to increase your stature in man's eyes, right? Do we get this? Do we get this? Now notice what the apostle says about the two specific gifts he mentions. He says whoever speaks as one who is speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. The apostle is describing how they are to exercise those two particular gifts. Right? First those who speak. Who is he talking about? He's He's talking about the two teaching offices of the church, pastors and elders. Right. One of the qualifications of elders is that they are able to teach, and pastors are particularly called out in 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Our teaching is our speaking. We are to do it in season and out of season. We are to reprove, rebuke, exhort um, with great patience. And, and back to Peter, we are... We are to speak as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And what does that mean? Well, what that means, first of all, is that something extraordinary is going on when the Word of God is taught and preached by those men called and set apart by the laying on of hands for this office. Right? Something extraordinary is going on. Here's what commitment number seven of, of Trinity's commitment says about this. True preaching is neither a lecture nor a motivational pep talk. God's spokesman is not to suggest things for the congregation's consideration. He does not submit theories to the congregation for their evaluation. Rather, He proclaims God's truth, making piercing applications of that truth to the consciences of particular people. In the name of Jesus Christ, He commands men to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing to understand and obey every word recorded in scripture. So in other words, dear brothers and sisters, can we please acknowledge that what is going on in the preaching of the word is something extraordinary. That it is one of God's means of bringing you to maturity. That it is it is supernatural in its efficacy. Right? That it is powerful I mean, so many people get nervous when pastors say things like that because they think that the pastor is, is, is saying that everything he says is inspired. Well, that certainly is not true, right? But the Scripture that he preaches is God's Word, and as with the Thessalonians, those who have the Holy Spirit know that God uses the preached Word powerfully. Right? Paul wrote, We thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what but what but for what it really is the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. I mean, would you rather have a man preach to you who said, You really shouldn't trust the word I say? I merely give you thoughts to consider. I could be right. I could be wrong. Right? How is that humble? How is that humble? That man is admitting that he may be giving you what is written in the Word or not. It is really up for you to decide. It was the Bereans, right, who having received teaching from the apostles, determined that what they were teaching was the Word of God, right? They examined it, but then when they, when, they, when they examined it, they came and said, well, it is the Word of God. They did not conclude, nor, you know, nor did the apostles hedge that it may or may not be the Word of God. They received Paul's teaching as the Word of God. Of course, there's a difference between the inscripturated, inspired Word of God and the preached Word, right? But that does not mean in any way that God has not appointed the word preached as a means of bringing many to himself and of exhorting and feeding the faithful, those who have come to know Jesus. Pastors preach. Pastors preach. They do not make suggestions and appeal to your intellect like some TED talk. They speak as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That, dear brothers and sisters, is a sobering calling, right? It is a sobering calling and, and a necessary calling for the life and well-being of the church. God is always providing us, not with just just um, broken gifts. He's, he's going over the top and providing for us, not just His Word scripturated, but the Word preached. Every Sunday, He's giving you a gift of the Word preached. Every Sunday, the Holy Spirit is animating my mouth to make direct applications to specific people. And that is a truly remarkable gift that God would use and give to his church. Calvin said this, When we confer anything on the brethren, we minister to them by God's command that he has bestowed on us for that purpose. And truly, were all those who profess to be teachers in the church duly to consider this one thing, there would be in them much more fidelity and devotedness. For how great a thing is this, that in teaching the oracles of God they are representatives of Christ. Hence then comes so much carelessness and rashness, because the sacred majesty of God's word is not borne in mind but by a few, and so they indulge themselves as in a worldly stewardship. right? Some pastors give themselves over to the utterance of God, but then there are others who have a worldly stewardship. And all they're trying to do is build up the church's coffers and give to the people what their itching ears want to hear. Rather than being a representative of Jesus Christ, giving the Word of God. Last thing I'll say on this, it's both imperative that those who preach and those who sit under preaching understand this verse. Those who preach must do do so, as Calvin said, as representatives of Christ. Those who receive preaching must receive it as if Christ is speaking to them through his representative. Always come to the preaching of the Word of God asking this question, what will God speak to me today? What is God speaking to me today? Second gift focused on in this passage is service. Peter is now broadening his view to include any kind of service or ministry in the church. And his point is that it needs to be done by the strength that God supplies. That is to be its motivation. You are an instrument of God, not an instrument of your own ego or your own pocketbook or your own influence or your... uh, for your own musical instrument. Um, service in the church is to be done with God in mind, for God's glory and in his strength that he provides. It's not to be done uh, with ourselves in mind and our own glory and the strength we might get from, or the encouragement we might get from the applause that comes after an offertory. No, God's glory is to be paramount because it is his strength for service to his body that is at work in you. I mean, it's almost like you're given gifts as an, as an automaton. And God's doing all the work. God's giving the strength. God's giving the gifts. God's giving you the context. God's giving you the, the, the context of the body you're in. And you've been given this gift, and you've just got to get it done. That's it. You've got to get it done. Now, we're not automatons, and we're not machines. God is not just programming us and computing um, our arms and eyes to move in certain ways. We're not um, androids. And that's why it's so complicated, right? Because our will resists him, and our emotions get involved in it, and then our egos come in, and where we get applause, one place which might be appropriate, it's not in another place, and where we get, you know, um, praised and and It it just gets very complicated. Our motives seem to always be mixed, don't they? But there are so many people that have no compunctions of conscience when it comes to mixed motives. They are in the work of ministry for themselves, and boy, do they love the accolades and attention that come from it. And clearly, they're not doing pastoral ministry because pastoral ministry is really awful. And hard, and humbling, and dirty, and time-consuming. Right, pastors who say I love the pastoral ministry just does does not compute to me. It doesn't compute. I love doing God's will. I don't love the work, like like I love a chocolate cookie you know, out of the freezer. Um, <clears throat> The man who, has no, who just doesn't feel any mixed motives, they're in the work of the ministry for themselves. They love the accolades and attention. We do not need more of such men in the church today, just like we do not need more egotists in our government today, but rather we need statesmen. So also in the church, we need those who really only care about God's glory and who speak and minister with that in mind. God's glory alone. And so, you know, God give us this ability. God give us this ability. God give your church this ability. And that's where our passage ends. Speak and serve so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom all belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? There is one eternal God with one eternal goal of exalting His own perfections. And will you be about that? Right? Will you be about that, or will you be immensely short-sighted and continue to live for your own applause, for your own kingdom, for your own legacy? Right? Your own legacy. God's told you your legacy is His kingdom, all of it, right? That we'll, we'll, we'll judge angels. It's our legacy. We'll, we'll judge the nations. Right, That's our legacy. And yet we want 40 acres and a mansion. It's a pittance. It's nothing. And yet our motives are all mixed up and we have to continually repent. And it comes down to this. We have to die to self. We have to die to self. We have to live to Christ, dear brothers and sisters. That's what we have to do particularly when it comes to using our gifts. Die to self, live to Christ, and those gifts will be gloriously used in His body, which is the church.